So just the reality is, is that I just wish that, you know, I would have done something and handled that a little differently with my brother, but I feel like I learned something from it. And so the key now is that, that I, that I need to take what I learned and, and, and move forward with that and not do that again. So that, yeah, that's where I'm at. So, um, but if you recall from the last episode, kind of moving forward about the book, um, so I kind of mentioned, you know, McConaughey's kind of at this crossroads in his life and, you know, he's had this production company, a music label, a foundation, and then he's now kind of got the beginnings of a family. And he was also consistently getting these rom-com shirtless hot guy, you know, like we've all seen him, right? You know, just to the, all the, all the fun ones that we love, right? You know, um, the wedding planner, um, you know, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. I mean, that's probably my favorite McConaughey rom-com. Um, just love him and Kate Hudson together so much in the rom-com. Um, didn't quite love, was it Fool's Gold? <laughs> didn't quite love that one quite as much, but um, but it was still kind of fun to see them back together. But, you know, like he just, he. I mean, I think we can all, I mean, relate in some way that, even if we're not actors or performers or whatever, you know, we can kind of relate to that whole that you just want to be challenged in your career. You know, when, when you kind of come to a place that you've done all the things, you know, like you, you kind of want to move to the next level. And so he was really no different in that way. Um, and he actually considered doing something else like altogether. Um, there was one point he actually considered completely quitting acting and completely doing something else, which ironically he kind of is now, (laughs) but, um, anyway, but I just kind of felt like that was totally relatable. Um, even though, um, obviously I'm not an actor, but, and I also think like when you're good at something, the people in charge, want to keep you grinding on those things that are going to continue to make them money. And most of the time they don't really care whether you're being challenged or not. And so that's why it's super important that we as individuals, right, develop a sense of confidence and what not only that we're capable of, but what we're worth because, um, you know, like if you're not being challenged, you, you got to do something to get that. And, um, you know, a, a lot of those people that are in those in charge positions, they don't consider the lack of being challenged, you know, something negative for them, even though they don't really consider how, you know, if you're not challenged as the employee, then probably the productivity is going to suffer as well. Um, <laughs> teacher, <coughs> Anyway, <laughs> um, all right, you know, because like, I, I mean, like I was great at waiting tables, but, you know, obviously t- waiting tables wasn't my end game and it was a means to an end. And I kind of feel the same way about teaching, um, which, you know, like I'm super excited to move to a different state and I- I'm super hopeful that Colorado has different values when it comes to education. And I-, I do know they don't put so much emphasis on test taking and things like that. And Um, you know, and so it might be different, but I still don't necessarily see that as my end game being a classroom teacher. Um, but what's the next phase? I don't know. I guess you're going to have to stay tuned to find out. Uh, (laughs) but the point is, is that life, I think will always bring moments where it seems like you've just, you've just got to do 
and watch expectantly for the opportunities and make the most of them when they arrive. Um, and honestly, I kind of feel like that's the mantra of his whole of McConaughey's whole book. Um, yeah, you know, we we have to kind of remain able to create solid foundations, but you know, but remain static to where we can best serve our fellow humans. Um, and so, like for McConaughey, I mean, he knew, you know, he knew that what he had to offer the rom com field was kind of done, like he had done it all. Um, but what he also knew was it was going to take something drastic on his part for the Boys Club of Hollywood to notice that he was serious about taking his career to the next level. So he basically just stops working. <laughs> and he kind of, you know, him and his wife kind of have a powwow and they pray about it and they cry about it and they just have this moment. And this is the one I kind of felt like was, and I don't, like, I'm not here to judge, like, what was going through his mind and I can't judge that, obviously, but... You know, it was the one moment where I felt like was a little out of touch because it was kind of like this, oh, well, we're going to be so dry over the next two days. And I kind of feel like his dry is a little different than my dry. <laughs> you know, like his dry is, oh, we're only going to be able to afford a million dollar home instead of a seven million dollar home. Um, you know, so like that's, yeah, I mean, I, I get like there's that fear for him and it's not going to be as forthcoming with the green, but... Um, I, I'm pretty sure if he was able to save properly and, and do the things that he, he would have been fine. And he was obviously, um, but point is, is that the, the reality is, is that not a lot of people are in that position to be able just to not work for two years to chase a dream. Um, and so that, but at the same time, you, you do what you got to do to make it happen if that's what you want to do. Um, but back to his story. So he kind of stops taking offers. Um, he's, he literally just stops entertaining scripts. And then pretty soon, five scripts turn into one, and one turns into none, and basically he has no offers. Um, Hollywood officially got the memo. McConaughey was off the market professionally. But he doesn't just sit there and worry about his decision. I mean, he actually goes about living his life. Um, he does all the things any regular family man might do. He has Christmas with his family, which, you know, consists of kind of being around the people that keep you humble. And he kind of makes it a point to say that his family does that. But at this stage in his life, his family also recognized that he was kind of in a shitty place in his life. Right. And um, and so they kind of knew that this is probably not the moment to humble McConaughey, you know. Um, it was also, you know, his second child is born, his daughter, Vita. Um, uh-oh, I'm scrolling up. Um, and, well, he, you know, he, he doesn't drag out the professional drought too long. Um, but he definitely makes it a point to say that, that it was a challenging moment in his life. Like, you know, what I mean is, like, he doesn't go on and on and elaborate, like, what happens in between those two years. I mean, it's very, like, two pages, it was a drought, you know. Um... And so, like, roughly about two years goes by, and then he says that, you know, just shy of the two years being gone from the industry and sending out that very deliberate message to Hollywood, um, suddenly and unexpectedly became something, a new good idea, is what he says. And so, you know, his lack of presence gave the Hollywood moguls an opportunity to see him in a different way. And it was after this drought that he got the Lincoln Lawyer. And if you've never seen that movie, I actually just recently watched it again because I hadn't seen it in a while. So good. Um, and 
and, and, and obviously the epic departure from what you had previously seen him in. And so I remember when I saw that, and I didn't see that film right away when it came out. I think I ended up seeing it on Amazon Prime or something or, you know, when it came out or maybe even on cable. Um, which cable is obsolete, right? <laughs> it's like, who cables anymore? You know, Roku me, baby. Um, but anyway, so like when I watched this movie, I mean, you can definitely see. And, and interestingly enough, I watched Wolf of Wall Street right after that, um, which basically felt like one big cum stain on my face. That's literally what that film feels like. <laughs> That's like really graphic. I'm sorry. But it is just like the epitome of arrogance and it's just like, it's, it's just, I don't know. It's definitely a boys club movie, but he is pretty fucking fantastic in that movie. Sorry, the F-bomb, but like he just is. He's so good. Um, and, and he basically makes the scene that he's in. Um, and so, but you know, that was the role. And then that moment sort of changed the directory, you know, the director directory of his or trajectory, I should say. Um, I put directory in my notes. It's trajectory. I'm going to say that. Um, but from there, he, you know, he started getting roles in Bernie. Oh my God, Bernie is so great. Um, that is a great movie. If you've never seen that one as well. Um, that one was actually directed by Richard Linklater, who directed uh, Dazed and Confused. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Um, <coughs> ew. See, that's the, the thing about doing this live. Is that when you, um, <clears throat> when your tequila latte goes down the wrong way, <laughs> you get choked up. Anyway, but Bernie, I just, and I, what I love is that Mama Mac is in this movie. And it is like the quintessential... It, it, it almost feels like a documentary, um, the way that it's filmed. And, uh, you know, Mama Mac is in this movie, and I just can't, like, now that I've read the book and know, like, some backstory of kind of what happened, that their relationship was kind of tested. And I kind of love the fact that he actually ended up giving her that opportunity in the film. Like, you know, that even after, like, she was maybe trying to be famous for a bit. And then they had their moment, and now that they're good again, you know, he was able to kind of give her that moment, you know, which was super nice of him to do. And I actually watched Magic Mike again last night, and oh my god, what? <laughs> like, his performance, again, is, is just, it's scene-stealing worthy, and it was during, you know, I remember there was, there was Oscar talk for Magic Mike of all movies, you know, for, um, you know, supporting actor for him. And when you start getting that talk, you know that, you know, that the, the decisions that you've made are, are probably on the right track. Um, you know, Mud is another one that is another film I actually have not seen. And I was going to try to watch it last night, and but I just fell asleep. Um, but I am going to watch that. I think I'm going to watch it today. But anyway... I have not seen Mud, but I've heard it's really great. And, um, but it, it's it's really funny though. When I was watching Magic Mike, I could not help but feel like that it was almost like a Texas fuck you. <laughs> like, I mean, he's playing the stripper with an edge, and it's sort of this culmination of his desire to be more dramatic, like juxtaposed with this once forgotten shirtless McConaughey, you know, running on the beach. And, and, and it's just, and I definitely don't know and, and absolutely do not obviously know if that was <laughs> the intention behind 
but it probably was not. But it's just funny to think about that. Because that, you know, I think that maybe that was the second. No, I don't know. I don't even know what number, what role it was right, you know, after his little transformation. But um, it's just funny to think about that, you know, that it's just kind of like, this is the way you wanted me. And so now I'm going to do it my way. And this is what you get. And so I fucking loved it. And it was awesome. Um. And so, you know, like he says that, you know, the target finally drew the arrow. You know, so with all of this and, and his drought over two years, um, that, you know, the, the target finally drew that arrow. And he had to say no for two whole years before he could say yes. And so he had to let go in order to gain. And so, you know, like... Obviously, with the place that I'm at in my life right now, I mean, you know, letting go to gain is, is something that, that I think about a lot. You know, I think about the fact that I'm essentially kind of letting go of Texas and, you know, the life that I've lived here for 47 years. <laughs> um, and I think that this is not only going to be one of the best decisions I've made, but it's going to be, you know, just another stop on my wellness journey because I think changing your frequency involves letting go of what you think your life should look like. And I mean, it's scary because there's so many unknowns, you know, but in order to get to the next level, we have to be willing to take a risk outside of our comfort zone. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. Like I still sit here, even though I'm super excited about this next phase of my life. I mean, it's scary. Um, this is by far the most I've ever been outside my comfort zone um, in terms of like moving and all of that. So I'm excited, but you know, growth is not easy. And, and a lot of people, you know, me and my health coach, Amy, you know, talk a lot about that, that, you know, change and growth is hard. And if it's not hard, then are you really? putting forth the effort to make it happen because it shouldn't be easy. Um, and so I feel like that's what McConaughey does. And ultimately, you know, he gets the arrow. He was getting arrows, obviously, like he's getting these little arrows, you know, with these different roles, but obviously the epic one that we're going to, you know, we're going to hit the hair, you know, hit that is, is Dallas Buyers Club. Um, and so like from this professional standpoint, you know, he, he spends some time in the book talking about, you know, getting the part and working with the director on certain scenes because, you know, because he was kind of commissioned for this for this film. I mean, he actually had some creative control on some stuff. But ultimately, this is where, um, you know, this is where all this is, you know, kind of leading him in terms of a, of a career. Um he, he gets to a role that kind of garners him this gold and praise, but, but you, you know, but if you know him and, and, and you know anything about this man, whether from reading a book, this book, or just seeing him, you know, on interviews or whatever it is, is that you really know that it's, it's most likely it's, it's definitely not getting the Oscar. It's not getting a piece of hardware. It's not the admiration that, that comes from all the things it is the respect that he got from his peers. And I don't, to be quite frank, I'm not really sure if he specifically says that in the book, but that's, that's what I'm claiming. <laughs> like, 
and that's what I'm claiming is that that was that was more important to him than just the fact that he got this piece of gold. I mean, he's grateful for it, obviously. I think he's, and he's proven that he's a man of gratitude. In the simplest things, this man is a man of gratitude. Um, but, but this is something that for him, I think the respect of his peers, I mean, he spent his whole life, you know, doing things out of respect for his dad and doing things out of respect for his, the way he was raised. And, um, and all of this has culminated into this professional, um, accomplishment. And so part eight, you know, kind of begins, you know, where it's a little more focused on, you know, his, his personal life and, and how that has um, you know, kind of culminated into this book and, and, and all these things. And so the last section, which is titled live your legacy now, um, kind of starts out with, with a father son moment with his, his oldest son, Levi. And he recognizes that mommy and daddy aren't married yet. (laughs) He starts asking a lot of questions and this is what I love about this man is that being the man that he is, he reveals that he begins to turn inward and ask these questions. He tells us this. He is vulnerable enough to tell us that he knows that he's got to turn inward and start asking these questions as to why he doesn't marry, hasn't married this woman yet. And so he does. And he visits with a pastor and he visits with friends and he visits with people who are married. This man does his due diligence to understand his whys. And he does. And once he does that and and he kind of, you know, spends that time praying over it and doing all the things. And then one, you know, he knows that. You know, he's got to be able to evaluate, recognize, and then conquer his internal demons if he intends to keep the woman, right? And then stop the questions from his son. <laughs> so he ends up marrying Camilla um, in June of 2012. And, you know, if you do the math, um, because a little bit later he says that his third son, Livingston, is born in December. So obviously, if you do the math, she was about two months pregnant when they got married. Um... So, but, you know, basically at this moment, um, you know, he says, I was fulfilled in my life as I had ever been married with three children. Like my father, I was finding inspiration everywhere, but now in truths, not ideas. Unimpressed with my success. I was involved in it, wanting what I needed and needing what I wanted. The more successful I became, the more sober I got. I liked my company so much that I didn't want to interrupt it. I received an offer for a lead role in an eight-part limited series for HBO called True Detective. And so this is kind of like, honestly, the last... I could be wrong. Am I wrong? I don't know. I don't have anybody here to talk to right now. (laughs) But I feel like this is the last role that he's done, right? Okay, I might, I might, I could be wrong, but I'm going to have to look. I feel like I'm wrong about this, but because shortly after that is when he started, you know, he went to UT and started being the, the minister of culture and, and like is doing all that stuff now. So, and then this book, obviously. So, um, that's why I'm almost positive that that's right, but I could be wrong. Um, 
but point of my story being is that it it, it really you know he you know he kind of says this in the book <laughs> that you know as academy campaigning begins for like when he did the Dollar Spires Club you know that's when he was on True Detective and he kind of says that him and Camilla you know watch True Detective every week just like everybody else um, because he wanted to experience it like everybody else um, and so. It's just, it was interesting because he actually wanted to, the, he was actually up for the role of Woody's character originally, Woody Harrelson's character, but he campaigned to get the, the role of Rust. And um, it's like, again, you, you think about the things that he's, this, that he's campaigned for in his career, um, even clear back to A Time to Kill. And, and now that you think about these roles, and I, I mean, I cannot think of anyone else playing Rust. I, I mean, I, I can't picture Woody. Playing Rust, and so I mean, obviously he knows like what he just—he's very in tune to himself, but not like in this arrogant way. Um, and so it's just something to emulate in a way. And so I can see why people um, gravitate towards him. Um, and so you know, True Detective. I guess where I was going with that is that. You know, he kind of says in the book that, you know, True Detective, he kind of alludes to maybe that True Detective helped him out and is helped him out to kind of get the Oscar because like every, you know, as the, as the campaign was happening, True Detective was on the TV. And so, but, but talent is talent, right? You know, like, and even though, yes, this whole Oscar thing is like, it's, it's involved with campaigns and like who is going to get loudest with whatever, right? You know? And, and there and there is some of that. There obviously is. But there is no way that anybody else deserved the Oscar that year other than McConaughey. So regardless of, of how well that True Detective did for him in that campaign process, it, it, you know, it still doesn't change the truth about the fact that his performance, well, at least in my opinion, was the best. Um... And, you know, like, I just think it's, you know, life sometimes puts us into these limbo situations where we just have to kind of sit and be patient and allow God to kind of work out the things that he needs to work out in order to get us where we need to go. And um, I feel like that this was, you know, really obviously the perfect book to have read. I, I, I'm, I'm upset that I read it in such sporadic pieces and um, but at the same time, I, I'm also grateful because I feel like that as I was reading these pieces, it kind of reinforced um, some of the decisions that I was making in my life, you know, with the move to Colorado and all of those things. Um, and for me, you know, like I very openly said that teaching isn't my full end game. And even though I imagine doing something different um, and following in the footsteps of someone like the holistic psychologist on Instagram, if you guys, I mean, that woman is amazing. So, you know, she, she's built a really great community and, um, I really love the idea of becoming a bibliotherapist, um, which is utilizing literature as a means to help people. And, um, so those are things that I'm considering. And also, um, I am kind of starting a media PR marketing business, on the side, I've got all these little things going, but, um, you know, kind of helping some small businesses, you know, start, start the things that they need to start. Um, 
so I just honestly I just want to use all the gifts God gave me in one place and I feel like this you know doing some of these things will will kind of lead me in that direction and that's the ticket right you know it's 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 finding foundation but being static and able to remain ready to walk through the doors that swing open and walk by the ones that slam shut and not taking it personal and that that that's honestly been the hardest thing for me because going through the process of, of finding a job in Colorado was a little bit challenging because they pay teachers a whole lot more in Texas <laughs> than they do in Colorado and so it was kind of difficult um at first and when they're literally, you know, the first district is offering me almost half of what I was making or, you know, when making in Texas and, you know, it took some finagling, you know, to be able to, to focus on the districts that were going to be able to compensate me. Um, and also, you know, moving to Colorado is more expensive. And so it wasn't just about finding, you know, a salary that was the same, but I actually had to find one that was a little bit more, um, to offset the taxes and such. So it all worked out because God worked it out because that's what I'm supposed to do. And it's, this is absolutely where I'm supposed to go and what I'm supposed to be and where I'm supposed to be. And there's not a doubt in my mind with that. And, um, I just think that, you know, I, I just, this book has really, you know, helped, I think guide that process. Um, and you know, he kind of ends the book talking about, you know, where, where he kind of goes off to sort of pull all the things together for this memoir. And, um, you know, just kind of spends more times with themselves and, you know, just in his reflection, you know, laughs and cries at all these moments that have passed in his life. And, um, and so, you know, kind of at the end, he says, as I've navigated the weather in my own life, getting relative with the inevitable has been a key to my success. Relatively, we are living. Life is our resume. It is our story to tell, and the choices we make write the chapters. Can we live in a way where we look forward to looking back? Inevitably, we are going to die. Our eulogy, our story will be told by others and forever introduce us when we are gone. The sole objective, begin with the end in mind. What's your story? This is mine so far. Green lights. Ah, wow. And, you know, and the, one of the things, you know, just as a literature teacher, and one of the things I really haven't talked a lot about with this particular book, because it's just a different kind of book, right? You know, but obviously the, the, what, makes this vo- what makes this book a, a great book is his voice and his diction, because the entire book is told in the diction of a Texas person right you know and, and it's just you when you read this book you feel McConaughey when you read this book you you hear him talking and then it's just that much more lovely when you listen to the book because he's telling the story and then you realize oh my god it does this <laughs> sounds just like him in my head when I was reading it and so it, it's definitely captivating and inspiring and absolutely recommend 100%. That's my official review. Um, so lots of things happening, but here's the deal with the podcast. I am cautiously optimistic that I'm going to continue this, that it might look a little differently um, as I move into Colorado, but I hope that you will stay tuned. Um, and here's to not half-assing it. Have a great Sunday, and I'll catch you on the other side.
Alright, alright, alright. Welcome back to our final part of the Green Lights podcast. And y'all, I'm going to start with a confession. (laughs) Okay, so, well, first of all, y'all should know that, so I left my mic at home last week. um, And so I have it this week. But if you recall from previous episodes, I've mentioned several times where it kind of flickers. And so it's doing that now. I don't know. Um, We're going to see how it'll work. Hopefully, um, everything will come out okay. But if not, there's always tomorrow to re-record, right? Sure, yeah. Okay. So, um, anyway, so I was kind of talking about, you know, I wanted to kind of give this confession. And, you know, I've been super busy closing out all these loosens. Um, As I prepare to change my own frequency by moving to Colorado by the end of the week, um, T-minus five days so you know there was like this feeling that there was all these pressing things that you know which is probably to be expected right like I've got all these things going on and so you know I just felt like this this was very secondary you know doing this podcast um and I just you know there was just so much reluctance to like do it and to sit down and you know like really do it the way that I wanted to Um, And the more that I thought about it, the more I began to really kind of think about the reluctance behind, like, why that I stall, you know, with all of these really things, these really ambitious things that I have these really big ideas for. Um, And so, like, that's the thing about me. It's, like, good or bad. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking. Um, And some, you know, obviously, you know, thinking is a good thing. Um, And I was able to recognize that something definitely needs my attention. And, and it's really fear of failure. I mean, there I said it. I mean, it's it's fear of failure. Um, and honestly, like, as I began preparing this podcast, <laughs> it's like all I could hear um, was McConaughey's voice as Big Jim saying, don't half-ass it. Roger that. So, um, but as I got here to brood, the person that I'm supposed to talk with um, is not here yet um so if she comes in great if not we're gonna kind of roll maybe i'll try to um ask people some of these questions that i had um so you know kind of going off of last week's podcast um i think the thing you know i I didn't really have a very well-rounded script down and so it's one of those things that you know i kind of corrected this time by adding you know questions here and there um and, and also just, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to do it in this kind of environment because some of the questions I'm asking require thinking. And so kind of putting people on the spot might not be the best. Um, so it's just kind of trial and error <laughs> with some of this stuff. And so I guess there's, you know, on my part, being completely transparent, you know, that there's that fear of failure. Um, and so oddly enough, it's interesting that Chapter 7 of this book is... Be brave and take the hill. Woo. Okay. So McConaughey actually starts this chapter by sharing his philosophy on kind of how he approaches crisis. Um, if you could call it the end of the last episode, you know, he kind of had come to this place in his life where, um, you know, he was kind of at a crossroads. And there was a crisis that happened in his life. He does not say um, specifically what the crisis is. 
but um, there is a family crisis, and so he kind of picks up and, and, and sort of talks about, you know, when stuff like that happens. Um, sort of his philosophy of approaching that crisis is that you recognize the problem, stabilize the situation, organize a response, and then respond. Sounds perfectly logical, right? <laughs> and don't we wish that things worked effort effortlessly like that when the crisis is actually in play? And when we're in the throw of, of someone being a dick, or when we're in the throw of, you know, just an, an argument with someone over something, um, these kinds of, you know, like that kind of approach doesn't always readily come to your mind. And so the art is making it come to your mind and practicing that over and over again so that when those crises come, that that becomes a natural response. So... Um, but I, I fully believe that God uses re crisis so that we can establish resilience and trust. And it's kind of our perception of this that can make or break us, you know, if we choose the pity approach, which I have, you know, completely have chosen that approach. Um, you know, we, we kind of look at God and the world as enemies and, and who are kind of out to get us. But if we choose approach that, you know, where, where we just kind of look at crisis as a natural part of life and it's not really something that's out to get us you know we can kind of learn to be grateful even for those moments because it's really those moments that really dig in and establish our character um, that basically tells the world what we are going to become and that there that there's it's not over yet like you know God's not done with us yet and there's another destination beyond um, and the thing that, you know, like when we go back to this little philosophy about basically like, you know, you think, think before you speak, you know, like all these different things, you know, going back to specifically, you know, specifically that, you know, stabilize a situation, organize a response and then respond. I mean, Jiminy Christmas, look across social media and you see how society feeds off of reaction. You know, there's little thought process that goes into a lot of responses on social media. Um, it's pretty much the antithesis of recognize, stabilize, organize, respond. And so, you know, it's, it's super troubling to me um, as, as an English teacher, <laughs> as a, you know, quasi-journalist, I guess you could say, you know, a, a trained journalist, um, it, it's, it's frustrating to, you know, as a teacher to see students engage, um, it, it, it sucks to see adults do it, hell, you know, like just the pettiness that gets involved in social media. And then before you know it, it's like, you literally are observing a full blown argument over something that basically was probably a misunderstanding based on a, you know, probably not the right words used and, and, and it's, and it's somebody not stopping, stabilizing, organizing before responding. And so, um, that's kind of tricky. And, and even beyond social media, you know, like I said, I mean, it's, it's always a little bit more difficult to do that in the moment. And so, um, you know, I think social media is tricky. Anybody ever responded on social media the way that they should not have? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just boldly asked that out in the group. 
that was a uh yeah so you know I mean I think we've all done it it's just one of those things that we have to practice kind of that same mentality um and so like for me in my own personal life like there was a there was a situation that just happened in my life you know I, I got into this argument with my brother and I wish I had honestly spent more time in those first three phases before responding and I mean, you know, we've made amends and, and everything's cool now, but, and I was able to recognize my peace, but, you know, the reality is, you know, I think if we care about people in our lives, we have to evaluate our actions and behaviors and, you know, we have to kind of identify those things so that we can react in, in more appropriate ways um, if we love those people. And if we're not going to make those changes based on the things that people that love us tell us, then why are we involved with those people, right? You know. Um, but for me, you know, in that particular situation with my brother, I mean, I recognized something else about myself, which was that I honestly had never communicated with him how he had made me feel about something prior to that. And so had I dealt with that when I should have, then it, the the upset inside of me and the frustration inside of me over that issue would not have built up throughout the day. And so, you know, but, but it takes recognizing that, right? Like it takes being able to acknowledge that and... my 